Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us this week for yet another show during a very interesting, engaging, challenging, eventful uh, time in politics, uh, where we've seen over the past week the inauguration of the 46th president, uh, where we've seen the end of the the first term uh, and the only term of uh, Donald Trump, uh, and all of the things that have happened in surrounding that from the events on January 6th. Well, we go back to the election, the election on January 5th in Georgia, the uh, riots at the Capitol on January 6th, the impeachment of President Trump, uh, and then, of course, moving into the inauguration. And so it just doesn't seem to to stop. And we knew it would ramp back up. We had a little bit of a, a breather in there, although there was a lot of analysis on what's going on in the world of politics, especially in relation to the U.S. presidency. So we had a little bit of a breather there where uh, not a lot was happening. Donald Trump's Twitter feed was shut down. Uh, a lot of the things that kind of would spur the news cycle uh, shifted to focus on the inauguration. And of course, now we're through that and we already are out of the gate and running uh, with the Biden administration. And of course, w- one of my points is that a lot of the news cycle is not just going to be engaged with what President Biden is doing and then a possible impeachment trial. It's, it's going to be engaged very much so in a, a comparison and contrast how different is Biden in the office as president and governing in comparison with Donald Trump? So a lot of that airtime that was taken up with events and issues and words directed at Donald Trump and either criticizing or supporting what he was doing, now that's going to transition. And I think this is an interesting time. I hope to get to this in a in a show in the near future where we go back and look at the media and politics, which we've done uh, at least once before on this show and talking about uh, means of communication and how this works within politics. But I, I think we're going to see a transition in the media uh, that will be uh, very much focused on this comparison and contrast. And it will be cast in different ways. On one side, it will be uh, looking at how Biden is what he's doing uh, and maybe more of an, in a supportive way of looking at what he's doing in comparison with uh, a negative look at Donald Trump. And I think it's going to be the reverse of that as well. We're going to see media outlets and others that will focus on what Biden is doing and then how that is contradictory to what Uh, Trump was doing or how much better Trump did this or handled this. Uh, And again, this is all in that mix of politics as we go into uh, the first part of the Biden administration. And and really, as you're looking ahead now, and this is the political side of it, we we may not want to swallow this uh, spoonful of whatever it is at this point, but that is the look to the midterm election. We really have about six to, I would say six to 10, 12 months. Uh, It really starts sooner than that, but six months for sure uh, out of the gate here with the Biden administration before we start to turn and then look at what the impact of the administration and policies and the, the actions of the president and how that will influence the midterm elections that will come up in 2022, because people will start announcing uh, they'll start uh, preparing, uh, pri- you know, primaries will begin 
uh, next uh, spring. And so it, it really is a small window when we think about it in terms of time, and especially, too, with Biden having control of Congress, or at least the Democrats in the House, uh, certainly in the Senate, uh, with uh, a split 50-50 Democrats and Republicans, or we say Democrats, independents, and Republicans with the president of the Senate, our new vice president, Kamala Harris, having that tie-breaking vote if it comes down to something along party lines. So we're, we're going to get into a few of these issues today. Oh, Before I do that, I want to encourage you to listen to us as you are today, or maybe you're listening after the fact on SoundCloud, where you can listen to each episode of the show after it airs, or you're listening on a podcast, but we're right here on KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon and streaming at the same time on tarletonradio.com. So that's how you can listen to the show as it airs. Of course, you can pick it up, SoundCloud, where you get your podcast at any time. And you can also go back and look at previous shows uh, and, and connect with issues. We try to include all the issues and topics that we cover in the title of the show for each week. But you are joining us here on politics, and we're glad you're with us today. And I think the issue that I need to go to first, even though we've got a new president and we've got executive orders, which we'll we'll get into that a little bit as well, but I think we need to go back to impeachment and talking about what's happening here and if there are any additional developments that are leading us along the timeline here of where this is going uh, towards an impeachment trial or If you were with me last week, if you listened to the show, uh, my premise here was that the impeachment trial was of no benefit really to either party. For it to move forward now in the Senate, the uh, negative outcomes outweigh the positive outcomes in terms of moving forward with the trial. And I think now you're starting to see, even though the debate has already been there among legal scholars, constitutional scholars about whether you can impeach a president after he leaves office, or if the focus here is on not just impeaching and moving with the trial to uh, really, you can't remove him from office, which would be the first vote, but to get to that, that vote that only requires a simple majority to bar him from running from federal office in the future. I think there are, and I, well, I know they are, we all know there are, there are people, Democrats, maybe some Republicans that want that to happen. They, they want to get to that point, but are there enough to have the two-thirds majority vote that it would re- be required to convict the president, the former president, uh, on the removal of office? And, and could that even happen? Can that even happen? Would it be challenged in court that constitutionally that this cannot happen because uh, the the president President Trump has now left office, so all of this is in the air, in the mix, in the debate. And if if you listened to the show last week, uh, I hope you followed a little bit in terms of some of the reasons. And I won't, I won't go into all the detail about that because I want to get to some of the more recent developments. Uh, but the 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 focus of the perspective that I have is that. McConnell, Mitch McConnell, uh, no longer the majority leader uh, as of uh, uh, Wednesday, 
the reason for him supporting moving this to the Senate, at least prior to the inauguration, and, and also holding out that it needed to be considered and it needed to be brought to a vote, uh, was to hold the president in check, uh, to, to basically say to him through this action and these words that, okay, enough's enough, we're done, we need to get to the inauguration, uh, we're, we're holding you here to, to, to leave in a way of dignity of, of the, the office without causing any more significant challenges uh, in terms of governance, especially after the January 6th event and the riots in the Capitol, which you know have led some Republicans to speak out and some in the at least 10 in the House to support uh, the vote on impeachment. So uh, I've heard that now from several others. I mean, I was throwing that out there last week before I'd even done a survey across those analysts and in, in, in media and other areas just thinking that, okay, it, it's really a political, uh, it's a use of political power in that moment to not move things forward and to make those kinds of statements that McConnell did in order uh, to hold the president uh, in check while he was still in office. But if we look beyond that in terms of the trial itself, uh, there's a lot of other complications, not just the constitutional argument of whether it can actually be done or not, and the standing uh, that Donald Trump would have uh, in the Senate, the role and the power that the Senate has. Uh, but the, really the concern here now for Republicans going forward and for Democrats is the ability to accomplish the political agenda of President Biden, as well as to position themselves for the 2022 elections. And for both sides of that, there are really a number of, of negative outcomes that could happen if they move forward with an impeachment trial, which now the Democrats can do this, they can can control it in terms of process. It's really triggered now on the action of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi delivering the articles of impeachment to the Senate, which he's not done yet. Could that happen? Uh, yes, it, it very well could happen. And then the Senate could vote not to move forward, or they could they could control the process in which it's shortened it's it just moves through there's the vote and then that's it uh just in to do it in form only and I, and I think that's probably one outcome that they're looking at because knowing that they're not going to have the votes i mean if you look at the republicans who've lined up that might possibly support uh the removal from office vote uh there's not enough i mean you need the 17 Republicans to join with the Democrats in order to do this. And it just doesn't seem that it's there. And it seems like the, the more that we move beyond this, so this is the distance factor, I would say, the longer this is delayed, the more and more it's going to seem less likely that this will uh, either move to the Senate or if it moves to the Senate, that it would be supported by a sufficient number of Republicans. Now, for the Democrats, the concern here is not doing anything. So if those articles of impeachment are not delivered, if they don't go through at least some trial process, even if they do not get the outcome, they can at least say, hey, we tried. The critical thing is how short can you keep this? How contained can you keep this trial in order not to delay uh, the agenda items of uh, the Biden administration. Now, he's already off and running, 
with executive orders, which we'll talk about uh, in the second part of the show. But there's legislation. There's a $1.9 trillion proposal uh, related to economic relief and the pandemic that, that Biden ha- is going to put on the table and is going to want Congress to act on this. Uh, of course, he's playing, the, he's playing the safe ground here and letting on the impeachment part and saying that's Congress's responsibility that's in their hands, let them deal with it. But he has to be very concerned about how this is going to impact his agenda especially as aggressive as it is, as we'll see in a moment, uh, in these uh, first uh, uh, three, three and a half months in office and what he needs to do to aid and use the powers of the presidency as well as the role of government to start to turn this on the pandemic, start to address what we're seeing are now the long-term economic impact of the pandemic on the country as a whole. So talking about the impeachment and why I think that this is moving in a direction that may either end up in no trial uh, or it may be a very abbreviated process that co- that leads to that initial vote uh, of removal from office, which, again, is the threshold to move to the next one, which is a, a barring from federal office. Why I think that process will be either shortened or, or, or may not even happen at all Um You're starting to see people come out and speak about this, both senators. A lot of this has started with the op-ed by Alan Dershowitz uh, this weekend that was uh, uh, put out there regarding his opposition and and basically calling on the Senate and and, uh, his uh, op-ed piece published in the Wall Street Journal. He was saying that it's unconstitutional to move forward with the trial and the impeachment article since Trump is now a private citizen. And so he's making the argument. Remember, Alan Dershowitz was uh, the attorney who defended President Trump during his first impeachment trial. But he is arguing that that there, I guess there's a constitutional case here that the Senate can throw out the articles of impeachment against Trump uh, or the article of impeachment now that he is a private citizen. Uh, and so he is looking back at this in terms of, is there any precedent? There's really not. I mean, he, he does talk about uh, the impeachment of the Secretary of War, uh, William Belknap, in 1876, uh, who had accepted kickbacks uh, in exchange for appointing an associate to a uh, military uh, trading position. Uh, but what Dershowitz said on this, and I quote, Secretary of War William Belknap was indisputably guilty of numerous impeachable offenses to which he confessed as he resigned from his office hours before the House unanimously impeached him in 1876. But two dozen senators who believed he was guilty voted to acquit on jurisdictional grounds, meaning that he had resigned they no longer had jurisdiction. And this is what Dershowitz is pointing out now, that, that the Senate and no longer has jurisdiction because Trump is no longer president. He concludes a close vote nearly a century and a half ago doesn't establish a binding precedent. So, again, the question here is, will this be challenged? I think what we're going to see in the coming week if the, the the delay continues in delivering the articles of impeachment, and even when they they are delivered, if this is the strategy and the the move forward by Speaker Pelosi and others, is that uh, that the debate about this and about whether the Senate has jurisdiction or not 
will, will increase. And you add that already to the lack of, of the number of votes needed to convict in an impeachment trial, and you just don't see this going to any outcome at all. Uh, you don't see it coming to fruition uh, in terms of Donald Trump being convicted and then being able to move to that level uh, or to that next vote, which would be, can he be barred from office? So it's going to be interesting to see how, how this develops in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think the, the concern for Democrats as well, and this is where uh, it's going to be interesting to see how all elements of the Democratic Party, especially those in Congress, work with the Biden administration to navigate this, because it is very political, but it also has an impact on what Biden is able to accomplish in his, in his first uh, weeks and months uh, in office. And again, keep in mind, and I'll keep this in front of you as we go forward, we may want, not want to talk about elections right now after all that was we went through this last year and through the election cycle and even up into the, not, the inauguration, it is about those midterm elections. It is at, at some point here, in, in about six to eight months, we'll start to see that transition where it is focused on uh, winning the midterm elections, uh, both parties starting to strategize, starting to plan. They're already starting to do that in terms of the party leadership, but but seeing what gains uh, they can have uh, in those uh, midterm elections. Uh, this impeachment issue, again, very, very challenging, very uh, political. Uh, all eyes are going to be on uh, the Republicans in the Senate uh, and whether it's seen that there is any possibility. But again, as I look through this list and there's several articles out uh, about the players in this process um, and you you have about a half dozen or so that have, have, have signaled a willingness to move forward with the trial. That doesn't mean that they're going to to vote to remove him from office. Uh, but when you look at Mitt Romney, who has been very vocal, Susan Collins, Ben Sass, uh, Pat Toomey, uh, it, it, there's just not enough. There's not a sufficient number here to think that, that this is going to be successful. And so is it in the best interest of Democrats to move forward with this? I think you're going to have a, a good percentage that are going to say yes, but we need to make it quick and we need to get it over with. We need to go through the process knowing that we're, we're not going to have the votes. And, and look at how this is portrayed by Democrats speaking out in the media. I mean, how, how are they going to help the public uh, or want the public to view this, especially their constituents who will be voting uh, for them or not in the next election? How do they want them to see this? And, and certainly they want to see it as they tried, but the 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 numbers were just not there. Uh, so again, I, I, I'm adjusting my, my premise here a little bit from last week, and, and I'm holding to that to say, I think it's negative uh, outcomes on both sides to go through this and go forward with this. On the other side of it, though, I think that Democrats have to be thinking about their constituents and how they will view this if they don't take that step and follow through, especially with having some bipartisan support for holding the trial. But will it be extensive? Uh, will it be abbreviated? Uh, will it be uh, shortened by any kind of vote regarding the constitutional powers of the Senate? Uh, or will it be long and drawn out, which I think would be a benefit to the Republicans uh, if it is because it delays the Biden administration 
And what President Biden is attempting to do in his first uh, part of his uh, term in office, as well as the, the 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 kind of the negative view that this could help them to have for their base related to Democrats. So we'll, we'll see how all of this uh, develops in the coming weeks. It's always interesting, as we've seen over the last uh, four years in, in politics, and this will just only continue uh, here in the first part of this uh, of the Biden administration and as we move forward on these critical issues. I want to turn now to, in the first part of the show, and we'll probably kind of split this in, in half here uh, with a break, but I want to turn now to talk a little bit about President Biden and his first uh, day or so in office, especially with his use of executive orders in addressing a number of policy areas. And when I looked at these, I noticed really three categories uh, that we see in how Biden hit the ground running with issuing uh, more than 25 executive orders uh, in within the first 24 plus hours. There's a group of these that are focused on the Trump administration, on the decisions that Trump made and reversing or changing those decisions. Uh, there is a, a, at least one of the executive orders, while and then there's a few others that connect, that is related directly to economic relief. Of course, he's putting a lot on his uh, proposal for the package that Congress will have to pass. And then, of course, the the one of the major categories that we saw a little bit in day one on the on inauguration day and a little bit more on the second day was connected to the pandemic. And so I want to look at these three categories. Uh, one, because executive orders are, are important and we should understand the way that they're used as a policy tool and how they're used by presidents. And when we look back over the history of executive orders, and I, and I refer to you, and I'll, I'll point, post this on the Facebook site, uh, the American Presidency Project is a great online resource for many things, including documents, primary sources, uh, recorded speeches, and so on related to American presidents. Uh, but if you look on the American Presidency Project site, they have a section where they list uh, the numbers of executive orders. And of course, you can access uh, some of these as well. And the use of it, it's really interesting to look at the chart and how they've been used, but the use of it has varied dramatically throughout the history uh, of the U.S. Uh, presidency. Uh, the numbering of them uh, did not begin until 1907 uh, by the Department of State, which assigned numbers to all the orders in their files. Uh, and then it was not until the Federal Register Act in 1936 that a more thorough documentation of executive orders uh, began. Uh, before then, the discovery of an order not previously counted uh, has resulted in assigning it a number, uh, and thus you have this numbering system that's now used uh, in contemporary times. Uh, so now, today, in our contemporary time, all executive orders are published. Um, however, the Federal Register Act specifies that such orders need not be published if they have no general applicability and legal effect. Uh, in addition, the numbered executive orders, they're numbered where they were not numbered in the past. Uh, and there have always been many forms of these executive orders. Uh, executive orders basically have been used by presidents in order to uh, 
encourage or guide policy in a specific direction or to change things that are under the administrative purview uh, of the presidency. Uh, and if you look at, at recent presidents, and we could go back to Reagan and Carter, uh, the numbers of executive orders have varied. Most have been between 250 to 300 plus. Uh, we did have a uh, fewer executive orders in recent times uh, in the administration of uh, George Bush. Uh, we remember he was only in office for one term, whereas Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and Obama uh, were all in office uh, for uh, two terms. Uh, so, but again, in the, in the modern era, the number has been uh, between the mid 200s to 300 plus. Donald Trump issued 220 uh, executive orders uh, during his present presidency, which was about uh, 55 a year. And of course, we see that Joe Biden is off and running already uh, with issuing uh, 17 uh, on inauguration day. So I want to turn now just uh, briefly. Well, and let's do this. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back after the break, I want to talk about the uh, three categories of executive orders and, and, and just look at that and what that tells us about the focus of the Biden administration right out of the gate on Inauguration Day and the days that have followed. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics, and we thank you for joining us today. In the first half of the show, I went back and revisited some of the things I'd said about impeachment and looking ahead uh, to what may happen, and now we're transitioning to take a look at the Biden administration and the executive orders and how Biden is using these executive orders uh, right at the beginning of his presidency. So we thank you for joining us today on 90.5 FM KTRL. And whether you're listening to us at tarletonradio.com or through the airwaves, uh, we're glad you're joining us. And if you missed the first half of the show, catch us on SoundCloud after the show airs or download as a podcast. So looking at the way that President Biden has used executive orders, this has become a feature of the modern presidency where executive orders are used, uh, especially following on, on the heels of, a, of an election that, may, that has a transition in a party in terms of the administration, the focus is on what can be reversed, what are decisions that were made by the previous administration that could be changed. And so this was real, very much expected. And these are uh, the orders that Pre President Biden had prepared in advance of taking office so that he could sign them on Inauguration Day and put into action some of the, the things, uh, the changes that he could make using his presidential powers as of taking the oath of office and becoming the 46th president 
of the United States. So as I said uh, before the break, there are three categories of executive orders we saw in those first few days. The first category is just that. It's, it's taking decisions of the Trump administration uh, and reversing those. And one uh, was uh, related to the pandemic. I want to start with that one, and we'll get to more uh, in the third category focused on the actual pandemic. Uh, but one was restoring uh, the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense to the National Security Council. And so one of the very first orders was the, the, his appointment of, of, of Jeffrey Zients as the official COVID-19 response coordinator and, and then restoring this global health security and biodefense uh, element to that National Security Council. Uh, so that was a reversal, uh, an area and a position which uh, the President Trump had ended. The other part of this, too, that's somewhat related to the pandemic, and that was reinstating ties with the World Health Organization, uh, which uh, Anthony uh, Fauci had, was the head of that delegation and announced that uh, to the WHO uh, after President Trump had chosen to withdraw uh, the nation's membership and funding last year. So again, closely related to the pandemic, but more of a focused on reversing an action uh, of the former president. Another area was related to immigration and visas, and this was again reversing decisions of the Trump administration. So Biden using these executive orders to strengthen uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DACA program, which has been uh, somewhat uh, debated uh, among Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and here with DACA, you, you have the protection uh, from deportation for immigrants brought to the United States as, as children. Uh, the uh, President Trump had tried to end this program, uh, but the, the order not only kind of strengthens it at the moment, but it also calls on Congress to enact legislation to provide a permanent status and a path towards citizenship uh, for these uh, immigrants. Other re related topics that were addressed by executive orders uh, right off the bat here by President Biden uh, was the uh, reversal of the Trump administration's plan to exclude non-citizens from the census count, which uh, again, that had not been followed through by the Trump administration, but this even kind of seals that that will not move forward. Uh, another overturned a Trump executive order uh, that pushed aggressive efforts to find and deport unauthorized immigrants. Uh, another blocked the deportation of Liberians who've been living in the United States. Uh, also, uh, Mr. Biden signed an executive order that ends the what was referred to by many as the Muslim ban, but it was, it was focused on a handful of countries in which uh, travel was blocked to the United States uh, from these countries because of concerns of, of terrorism. And so I think this is a critical area that's going to be reviewed uh, right off the bat. I mean, the, there's certainly not the desire of a new administration to facilitate something happening, uh, but it's probably going to be much more uh, evidentiary-based and looking at what threat is actually there. Um, he also has halted the construction on the border wall uh, with Mexico, uh, the orders included an immediate termination of the national emergency declaration that allowed the Trump administration to redirect billions of dollars to building the wall. 
Uh, so they're going to begin a close review of the legality uh, of this effort to divert uh, federal money. On another topic, uh, reversal of decisions made by the Trump administration. Uh, Mr. Biden signed a letter to re-enter the United States into the Paris Climate Accords, uh, which will officially rejoin 30 days from now. Uh, and so this is a, an attempt to engage the U.S. back into global dialogue, uh, as well as, as it has an impact as well on standards, uh, even though those are, again, decided by nation, uh, it's it still uh, commits the U.S. Uh, to certain climate standards, and we'll be giving that attention as those climate accords, as, as this process moves forward. Uh, Mr. Biden also uh, uh, re reversed a number of Trump administration's environmental policies, including revoking the permit for the Keystone pipeline, uh, reversing the rollbacks to vehicle emission standards, undoing decisions to slash the size of several national monuments, uh, enforcing a temporary moratorium on oil and natural gas leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and reestablishing a working group on the social costs of greenhouse gases. So again, a number of policy reverse reversals. And you can see that the Biden administration already, if we would just look at these, uh, these administrations, administrative uh, policies or actions that reflect policy positions. Uh, I think it gives us an idea moving forward that aside from economic challenges and the pandemic, which we'll again get to in a moment, we see some significant reversals here in areas that separate the two parties in Congress. Uh, and that the attempt is going to be here to find a way forward with this. Now, what will be signature legislation, what will be um, the, the focus of, of the Biden administration in some of these areas. Uh, we already know some of that from the policy statements that have been issued by the Biden campaign and what he uh, gave attention to during debates and, and campaign appearances. But we, we really see the agenda here moving along the line of uh, back to some of the things that were given priority or at least focus or supported uh, by the Obama administration and by a Democratic administration. And this would be expected in terms of this focus on environmental policy, this focus on immigration policy, which, again, there's agreement on both sides that immigration policy needs to be tackled. It needs to be addressed. It's been too long in this country that that immigration policy has languished and then has is now just a patchwork of things that that creates some significant challenges uh, in how we go about uh, engaging uh, with immigration. Uh, but again, a couple of other things here just very quickly that were reversals of Trump policies. Uh, Biden ended the Trump administration's 1776 commission. Uh, which released a report earlier in the week that historians said distorted the role of slavery. Uh, Mr. Biden also revoked uh, President Trump, former President Trump's executive order limiting the ability of federal agencies, contractors, and other institutions to hold diversity and inclusion training. So again, another focal point of the Biden administration and of Democrats that are in this administration and in Congress is certainly going to be on uh, racial and LGBT equality, trying to address some of these issues uh, that were given significant attention uh, in events and in actions 
by not just those in the Trump administration, but we saw this uh, front and center by groups that are out there uh, that um, are, are uh, have seem to be seem to be a threat uh, to some of these uh, uh, issues of equality. And so the Trump, uh, pre- the Biden administration is moving back uh, to this focus. There's going to be a lot of attention on uh, civil rights. He issued an executive order that reinforces Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to require that the federal government does not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, and then finally, uh, in terms of Trump administration policies that were tackled right away by by President Biden was a freeze on all new uh, regulations that were put in motion by the Trump administration, which gives his administration time to evaluate which ones they want to move forward. Uh, so th- this is aimed at preventing what are called in the policy realm midnight regulations. So policies pushed through by a lame duck president uh, who's not concerned about being elected now that it's over, and it often uh, kind of cuts short the administrative review process, which can be quite lengthy and quite involved. And so the Biden administration wants to just take time to see should these even move forward or should they move forward with the kind of review process uh, that would be given normally to uh, policy initiatives. So a number of these are what was expected, reversals of Trump administration policies. The second group of uh, executive orders, which was a, a smaller group at this time, and then part of that is due to the limitations on uh, the executive and in terms of appropriations. And I think the Biden administration really focusing on this this package that they want to get through Congress that is massive, that tries to engage with a lot of the the needs that are associated with the pandemic and its economic impact. And so the the executive orders here was a move to extend a federal moratorium on evictions. And the president asked agencies, including the Agricultural Veterans Affairs and Housing and Urban Development Departments, to prolong a moratorium on foreclosures on federally guaranteed mortgages. Uh, Again, this is connected to the pandemic, but it, it is about Uh, the economic impact because of the high unemployment rate and not seeing that improve here in the short term. Uh, The president also moved to uh, put in place a pause on federal student loan interest and principal payments through the end of September. Uh, And there is a move in Congress and among Democrats uh, to, to, to go in there and cancel up to $50,000 in student debt per person. Uh, But that move in terms of a legislative process may come later. Right now, it was just the pause on an area in which the president did have that authority uh, to make that decision. So the final grouping here, which I think is something that it, it really shows that aside from reversing Trump policies that the Biden administration and Democrats were not in agreement with, The turn here was to address the pressing issues of both the economy uh, and the pandemic. And of course, they're very much intertwined and linked together, as we've covered on the show, where we we are certainly continue to see uh, the long term economic effects 
of the pandemic. And as the pandemic has, has spread, as it's increased in intensity, as, as deaths have increased, as infection rates, and now we're dealing with other variations of the virus, we're trying to see, seeing the challenges of vaccine distribution. Uh, we, we see the Biden administration really trying to tackle this head on uh, with a number of executive orders. And of course, we all want to see conditions improve, uh, it here is a concerted effort on the part of the of of the new administration uh, to try to to offer some solutions and and try to meet this and and this is very much in the center of what we call policy making, especially in a crisis like this. Uh, policy making happens over time. That time frame can be a period of months when an issue is very. Uh, intense and and very contemporary. It could be over a period of decades, depending on how that issue moves in and out of all the the aspects of policymaking, from the courts to political party agendas, to public opinion, uh, to uh, then who is in control, who has the power uh, in Congress and in the executive. So we we have a number of these uh, executive orders that were signed within the first few days that are directly aimed at trying to to pivot here, to trying to find a way to turn this thing around uh, in terms of the pandemic. And so I just want to summarize uh, some of those very quickly so that you're aware. And and again, it's not that a lot of these things aren't out there in the news media and so forth. They're given a little bit of attention here and there. but of course, our focus on this show is to go more in depth and to kind of look at this in, in, in a broad stroke, but also with specifics so that you can you can analyze this and see this. And, and really, my purpose in doing this is to look at how a President Biden is using the power of executive orders to engage and, and what is he engaging with and what does that tell us about his administration and his political agenda. So if we're looking at the uh, COVID-related, pandemic-related executive orders, uh, the one that that is uh, within his power to do uh, and that he's also then pushing that out to encourage states and local authorities to do as well, and that is wearing masks. And so now it is required uh, in all federal uh, on all federal property and federal agencies where masks are now required, but he also called on governors and local health officials and business leaders, mayors to encourage mask wearing and social distancing. Uh, an effort here to try to uh, extend uh, the, the 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 policy impact here of of wearing masks and social distancing to try to slow down the infection rate. Uh, and thus, it's the impact that it's having on our uh, healthcare resources, uh, the the problems that we're seeing in certain parts of the country with hospitals being uh, overcrowded, uh, with decisions having to be, be made about uh, who gets what treatments and when, uh, postponement of preventative surgeries and other things where people are not getting uh, the medical care uh, that they may need because of the need to respond to uh, the effects of the pandemic. Uh, the, so mask was a main one. Travel, uh, Biden signed an executive order requiring a mask on public transportation, including trains, buses, and aircraft. International travelers will need to present a negative COVID-19 test before entering the U.S. and will have to quarantine. And then the executive order also directs other agencies to expand public health measures for domestic travel 
and cross-border land and sea travel. So we see that as the intensity of the pandemic is increasing, thus a new administration, a new response. Supply chain, uh, President Biden signed an executive order to direct agencies to use the Defense Production Act to compel companies to make supplies needed to combat the pandemic. So this was discussed by the Trump administration. It was just not put into effect. And now the Biden administration is doing this with a focus on uh, protect, protective equipment like masks, as well as needed supplies for COVID-19 tests and to administer uh, vaccines. Now, the Trump administration, in, in discussing it, though, they did enact it on one, one point, and that was to get U.S. manufacturers to make ventilators and other supplies. But this is a more broad enactment of it and engagement uh, of that act. Uh, the other uh, is uh, focused on state and local support, and that is uh, accelerating the rollout of vaccines and providing more funding to local and state officials so that they can create more vaccination sites and then launching a national public education campaign. Uh, now, we, we were... Uh, we've heard this week that the, the Trump administration was very much focused on the, the vaccine, the, the creation of vaccines and the resources that went to that. But in terms of a national plan of vaccine distribution, uh, it just was not there. And it was not there was not really anything significant implemented. It was really left up, up to the states. And so President Biden is up, upping the role of the federal government in uh, in di vaccine distribution and in coordinating that um, and with the goal of, and this is very uh, significant here if this can be achieved, but 100 million vaccines delivered in 100 days. Uh, so that that's the goal. And so that tells us that a significant amount of attention is going to be uh, put toward this. Uh, other... Uh, other things related to this was the establishment of a COVID-19 response office, regular briefings that will happen on uh, COVID response, data collection, another executive order directing the response of all federal agencies to improve data collection and sharing, support for new treatments, support for testing, uh, and then a focus on safely reopening schools and businesses. Uh, it directs the Department of Health and Human Services to collect data on school reopenings and the spread of uh, COVID, allowing for more scientific research into the risk of putting kids back in schools. And the new plan also calls on the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to take on a larger role, setting clear guidance to employers on safe workplace practices and enforcement. So there's a lot that's going into this. Uh, some of this will be tied to the proposed 1.9 trillion coronavirus rescue package uh, that's called the American Rescue Plan. So some of the funding for this is in that package. But these executive orders uh, get the ball rolling. They get it moving in that direction and urging Congress to move forward with this. And it kind of lines out a plan as to how the federal government is going to, uh, at least the Biden administration, using the resources of the federal government, is going to try to engage as, as much as possible 
in the pandemic and its effects. Uh, before I wrap this up today, and I hope that's helpful in terms of looking over some of that and engaging more in depth in what uh, what is happening and what is going to have a direct impact, uh, as at least we're hoping, on the pandemic. But I did want to give attention, and this is interesting in the world of public policy, especially in our country, where uh, we have a a system of federalism here that has those boundaries between federal and state governments. And as, as this being some of the challenges, especially in a pandemic, of, of the vaccine delivery. And that is, we saw in the news this past week that West Virginia uh, leads the nation in vaccine rollout. And this is just amazing because I think we could say that some people in this part of the country uh, would not think of West Virginia unless they were being played in football by another Big 12 uh, team. Uh, but West Virginia has has had significant success uh, in uh, uh, distributing the vaccine, leading the nation, not only in the number distributed per capita, uh, but also in the population that has been given the first dose uh, and those that are fully vaccinated, uh, and they have been able to fully vaccinate all residents in nursing homes. And it's really interesting here. I mean, it, part of it is applying it and looking at a state like Texas, where uh, we're talking about size and scope and so forth. But here we have, and this is what mainly I want to say, and I'd encourage you, and I'll post this article on uh, my Facebook page as well. But here you have what we call uh, a state being that laboratory, laboratories of democracy, where we do have a federalist system, where we do have uh, states that uh, do uh, that have been involved in this process, but they've been successful. The, the challenge with this is that we're in the middle of a crisis that is is in need of, of timely response. And we've seen already the repercussions of that. And I think we're gonna see more of this in the weeks and months ahead of not having a national coordinated plan uh, to roll out the vaccines. Yes, from time to time, our states do show us a way of doing things that maybe could be scaled up but remember, this happens in a policymaking process that happens over time. And at times like this, when we're in the midst of a pandemic, the one thing that we don't have to save lives is time. So I'll post this article. It's interesting to look at and to think about as we're going to see more happen in ramping up uh, vaccine distribution and how the federal government's role will be in this in comparison with what state governments are doing and what they need to do uh, to, to, to distribute vaccines and to really have an impact on curbing uh, the coronavirus and this pandemic. I want to thank you for joining us today. Again, go to our Facebook page for articles uh, related to each episode, and we look forward to being back with you again each week. Sundays at noon right here on KTRL-FM 90.5. with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.